We also need to do our draw. I need a number between one and seven. Seven, that's gonna be the back one. <gasps> it has no name on it. Who did this beautiful picture? Was this Addy? Okay, did you do this Addy? You won, awesome. The Melanson's three weeks in a row. Not gonna accuse you of rigging anything. Blessings on your Christmas bounty. That's awesome. I see what Rick's doing too, showing up to senior pastor. Oh, kids, want some gifts? It's just going to become an escalation of gift giving. By next Christmas, it's going to be, kids, look under your seat. Is that a Nintendo Switch? What the? Man, love it. Okay, we are in our final week in our Advent series. And just a reminder, if you came in late, there's no Christmas morning service next Sunday. There is a Christmas evening candlelight service starting at seven here. And then the following Sunday is New Year's Day. There is going to be a service. It's gonna be a bit more mellow, reflective. I'm gonna be leading us through some guided prayer and meditations in preparation for the new year. But I think it'll be really a, a great way to connect and worship and gather together to kind of start the year. There won't be any Sunday school or nursery around the time. So it's going to be very pared down, probably 45 minute service. We'll have some treats for those who, who come out and that's New Year's Day, January 1st. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter two, looking at the closing events of Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. These last few weeks, we've been moving through Luke and exploring how what Luke records of the Christmas event uh, challenges us, how it strengthens us, how it can transform us. And so today we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 40. Of all the Christmas passages, this section is probably the least studied or um, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe known outside of the church. You know, early parts of Luke 2 are pretty regularly read on Christmas Eve, but then it usually stops around verse 20. But this is part of the Christmas story. Verse 21, on the eighth day, so this is the eighth day after Jesus was born, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of dove or two young pigeons. So if we go to the map, AJ, just for a second, um, the journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is very, very short, but this is where they're going. And this journey holds together three um, ceremonies that happen so quickly and are so known to a first century uh, Jew that we can sort of miss them. There are three ceremonies recorded in God's law in the Old Testament that are required for those who give birth to a firstborn son. So you have the purification of the woman, the presentation of the firstborn to God, and then the dedication of the firstborn to God's service. And if that sounds familiar, that happened right at the start of 1 Samuel when Hannah uh, dedicates Samuel to God. Now, what's important to note, that it's kind of hidden in plain sight, and we might take it for granted, but the first readers of this gospel, first hearers of this message, 
would have realized, oh, these are people, Mary and Joseph are pious people. They care a lot about honoring God. They are following down to the letter what God requires of them. And we're also learning something important, not just about their character, but we learn something pretty revealing about their social standing and their economic status, and that is that they are poor. Mary and Joseph, we're told, bring two doves or turtle doves, depending on your translation. And that's a signifier of low, um, yeah, what we would consider to be like a, a bit more like close to or maybe just above the poverty line. In Leviticus 12, we're told part of the offering that is to be given as part of the purification is a lamb and a dove. But very quickly it says, or two doves if the couple can't afford a lamb. And so we're we're, what's revealed in the text is that Mary and Joseph are pious, but they're also poor. And actually, to me, this is really, really interesting. Because what that means is God entrusted himself to those of deep godly character and their social status and their economic wealth really didn't factor in at all, which is actually pretty strange when you think about it, because you'd imagine if you're going to entrust a precious child to human parents, you want as many layers of protection around that child early on for their whole life. And wealth affords a lot of layers of protection, certainly in the first century. But Jesus's parents didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of material possession. But God says, I'm choosing them for their character. And to me, that's instructive because as a parent, one of the things that you build uh, a desire for, and maybe as you get older, you, you sort of develop an anxiety towards is, have I given my kids enough advantages? Have, my, have I supplied them with all the opportunities that they need? And that doesn't always have a correlate with material things, but for many people it does. Lots of things, lots of opportunities, lots of material prosperity. That can be a trap that we can fall into as parents. And one of the powerful truths that I see here is that the the advantage, like the capital A advantage that we give our kids as parents isn't the material stuff that we can provide for them. It's the example of a genuinely humble, sincere, godly um, character. A character that is growing and learning, willing to be humble before God, willing to be humble before our own children? Am I consumed as a parent, or have I gotten distracted by thinking, well, if I just provide all these things to my kids, that's the biggest advantage I can give them? Or have I doubled down into this truth, which is actually becoming a more Christ-like person, a healthy, whole, God-honoring person? That's actually the most important thing for a child to know and experience and to be raised in and then to see as an example as they get older. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon and he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, 
as you have promised, you, have, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon lets us in on a secret that you know, has, you know, Luke's been giving lots of clues for, and the angels make it very clear Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the Savior, Christ, Lord, as we heard the angel proclaim. Now Simeon says he is the Lord's salvation. He's the embodiment of God's rescue. To see Jesus is to see God's heart and will perfectly established and revealed. In John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word, meaning logos, meaning unifying and a unifying principle that holds reality together. And that word was with God and that word was God. And then that word became flesh. So it's this powerful cosmic language, again, pulling us out of a very casual, low resolution understanding of who Jesus is. Simeon says that Jesus is going to be a light that gives revelation to the Gentiles. He's come to make God known, to make God's will known. He's come to make God's saving grace known to a world that is trapped in darkness and under the power and dominion of sin and death and the devil. Jesus comes to bring rescue and liberation and redemption. Simeon calls Jesus the glory of Israel which is a title for God. God calls himself the glory of Israel in 1 Samuel 15. It's self-referential. Again, we're seeing Simeon confirm what the angel said. This isn't just a great person in a mysterious way. This is someone who's fully human, but also fully God. This is the Lord God come among us. Jesus is a big deal. We've been learning about that. We've learned that Jesus is unique. He's the culmination of the entire Old Testament story arc. He's the source of eternal life. Salvation from the power and penalty of sin that begins in this life and is carried on to completion in the age to come. He's the divine center around which our lives are meant to cohere and find their meaning. Verse 33, the child's mother and father marveled at what was said about him. That's valid. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many within Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This is sort of the discordant note in this song so far that has been just simply celebratory. This child's going to be amazing, light to the uh, Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Awesome, awesome, awesome. But he's going to have a ministry and a life that's marked by a certain level of division. He will cause the rising, the lifting up, and the falling, the putting away of many within Israel. And we see that play out as Jesus' ministry builds and gains steam. There are kind of very clear lines drawn in terms of who do you say Jesus is? By what authority does he do the things that he is doing? Um, How are we supposed to respond to him? Do we bow down and worship him? Do we kill him for blasphemy? Jesus' coming will not yield, again, simply to 
everyone being like, oh, this is amazing. Remember last week we talked about Jesus comes as a king for everyone, but he's not the king of everyone. Because he won't force his will upon you. You have to receive it. You have to pledge allegiance, in a sense, to the king. Jesus, in a lot of ways, is going to split the nation of Israel in two. Some will see him as a sign pointing to something that should be opposed. They don't want the kingdom of God to embrace into their world, if this is what it looks like. And his ministry and his teachings are going to expose the thoughts and inclinations of our own hearts. An example of this divisive nature in Jesus' ministry is when he speaks in Matthew 7 and he says, I want to call you to try and enter through the narrow gate because wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many people enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And Simeon adds this really haunting ending to his kind of prophetic utterance where he turns to Mary and he says, you know, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Like no one's immune. Think about the godly example that Mary and Joseph have been. And Simeon says to her, the sword of truth that he's going to bring, who he is in his essence will pierce you right through the core. And there's some who see that as being a prophetic um, connection to the cross when Mary sees her son uh, pierced and her heart is broken. But it's also just the sense in which if we want to divide the world neatly into like good people, bad people, righteous people, unrighteous people, no, there's no one righteous, really, And when it comes down to it. We, when we compare against each other, it makes sense to say, well, you know, on balance, I'm a more righteous person than person X. But when we're in the presence of a holy God, the holiness and purity of God convicts us that there is a need for us to be covered and forgiven and redeemed. And I wrote here um, this idea that, uh, you know, to, to Mary who's holding this baby and, and being sent forward into her life with this baby, you know, a sword will pierce your own soul too. You know, to me, I, I, I just wrote down that, you know, following Jesus is absolutely powerful. It's transform transformative. It's amazing in a lot of ways. But it's also really, really deeply painful. There are, there, are just, there are just wounds that you will incur simply because you're a Christian. Because of what has to happen in your life. And I just say that because sometimes we have a very romantic view that faith should be an ever-escalating movement into glory and glory being understood as excitement and fullness and that's like half true, but sometimes that fullness only comes through a certain kind of trial or suffering. Don't be surprised or disappointed if you find serious discipleship to Jesus, both beautifully transformative and inspiring and also piercingly painful. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after uh, her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Or some translations will say she was then a widow 
for 84 years. She never left the temple, but she worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Now again, this is, harkens back to our first Samuel series, because Anna comes from the Hebrew word, Hannah. So this is another older woman who's devoted herself to God, prayer. She has been praying for the redemption of Israel, we learn in the next verse. She, like Hannah in the Old Testament, is living in this time of corruption, where even God's, even the priesthood in a lot of ways, in the, in the first century temple priesthood is corrupted. And it's been a time of extended silence from God. But this faithful old woman keeps showing up, keeps showing up. And she's seeking um, to intercede on behalf of the nation, much like uh, Zechariah was in the previous chapter. And what I think is interesting about Anna's example, you've got this little biography here, and it doesn't say very much, but honestly, every time I read it, it convicts me because it pushes me way, way beyond what's comfortable in terms of what I, how I would evaluate Anna's life. Because my instinct as someone for whom it's very important to live a full and productive and rich life is to kind of be tempted to think she kind of lived a kind of small life. And maybe in my lowest moments, I, I would even be tempted to think, but you know, I know technically it's not a waste to honor God, but like at the temple every day, all day, for decade after decade, couldn't you have done something more useful? Couldn't you balance it out a little bit? probably people who needed your help. Would someone dedicating themselves to show up to this church and pray and intercede on behalf of our community for eight hours a day for decades? What would that elicit from you? I know what it would elicit from me. I'm not proud of what it would elicit, but I wouldn't think of that as a heroic life. But Anna's a person and God's testimony and his word it's a real challenge to those of us who think what really matters, what really moves the heart of God and what shakes the world and what makes a big difference for God are these larger-than-life charismatic figures who do great things for God. Sometimes that happens, no doubt. We see examples of that in the Old and the New Testament. But I think, you know, I have the, the voice of, um, you know, Bilbo Baggins in my head where he says, you know, I'm, I got a paraphrase, so I, this just came to me, but the paraphrase is, you know, it's no, it's no shameful or small thing to live a simple life. Like a simple life is to be celebrated. Especially in a world where it feels like if you're not doing something larger than life, but it doesn't really count. And it's amazing to see Anna's life, as simple and focused as it was, be honored by God in this way. There are lots of people who are active for God. They accomplish great things, but they have a very malnourished walk with God. And despite all the fury around them and all the things they pull off and they do, it's often not really fruitful. Because part of the fruitfulness of the things that we do is it's grounded in our communion with God. And so there's lots of people who are deep in communion, deep in prayer, and then prioritize that, maybe you know, even in a way that would make us uncomfortable, and yet incredibly fruitful lives. 
So I always take time at Christmas because I am such a go-getter. I like to accomplish things. I like to hit the to-do list. And this is a reminder to me that taking time to worship, to serve God through worship and prayer and intercede for your church, for other people, that's not, that's not wasted time. It, it really, really isn't. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And when Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And, with, and the child grew, referring, of course, to Jesus, and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Uh, two things I want to put before us this morning. Two things that jumped out to me this year from uh, this text in Luke. The first thing I want you to notice is how God chooses and uses the quote-unquote post-productive. And I'm using that language intentionally because this might not be how you feel about your life, but it's often the way our culture speaks to those who are past their most quote-unquote productive years. Have you noticed that in the first two chapters of Luke, God is choosing and using people who are, I'll use a politically incorrect term, old, advanced in years, and or post-productive from a cultural sense, women who are barren, who are past their ability to produce the most important thing you can produce as a woman in a first century context. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, they are all in a post-productive stage of life. They are miles away from their most fruitful and energized um, stages of their life. And yet the Christmas story, when it comes to them, offers this promise, the most important years of ministry, the most important years of your life can actually be in front of you, even at an advanced age, if you devote yourself to Jesus. That's an amazing promise in the Bible. That is amazing. And what a contrast to our culture's subtle and not so subtle messaging to many people in the last third of their life, which is, we don't really expect much of you. Just stay comfortable and die eventually. We'll keep you comfortable until you die. We'll kind of throw some activities and hobbies to fill your day. To those of you who are in the back half of your life, the last third, the last quarter, retired, do you think you have more to offer at this stage of your life than simply staying comfortable and treading water until you die? Because God does. That God really regards the aged. And not just in a, hey, thanks for your service way back then, really appreciated what you did way back in the rearview mirror, but I'm doing a new thing and I want you to be a part of it. That's amazing to me. That's so encouraging. Right? We never retire from service to God. We might retire from a particular role and, and job and some responsibilities, but we never retire from serving God. 
If you are retired, the Christmas story encourages you. Or if you're moving towards retirement, or if you're thinking about retirement, if that's a possibility for you in the future, I want you to consider the fact that Christmas actually encourages you to reject the culture's message that that's going to be a time when you should prioritize ease and personal enjoyment. That's what that stage of life is for. Our culture, in all kinds of ways, will just reinforce. And I want you to reject that. I want to reject that vision. Don't settle for such a small vision for the last third of your life. Ease and enjoyment are a good thing. They will be part of those years, but they don't belong at the center. You don't build your life around those things. You build your life about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's going to look different when you're 75 as opposed to 40 or as opposed to 15, but it's still a compelling center and a vision. Retirement, that last third of life, is a time to serve God wholeheartedly out of the conviction that some of God's most important work doesn't happen until the last third of many people's lives. It's a time, even if we are physically weakened and we have limitations of mind or body or spirit, we can still pray like Anna. We can still devote ourselves to good works. We can still take time to put a casserole together to feed international students and say, God loves you. Have a blessed Christmas. It's not a time to shift into neutral. So while we might retire from a particular job or role, we actually never retire from God's mission to strengthen the church, to reach out to those who are lost in darkness, who don't know God, and to mature, to continue on the road of maturity into Christ-likeness in your character and how you interact and treat other people. So that's the first. God chooses and uses those that the culture, maybe even people who say to themselves, I'm kind of, I'm past my best, most productive, most vibrant years. God says, no, I got new things for you. And they're important and they're good. The second thing I want you to notice is that Christmas brings people together. Christmas brings people together. And we know that culturally, that's often very true, right? This is a big time for families and friends and relationships. There's lots of parties, even workplace parties. But notice in these first two chapters of Luke, Jesus' salvation, the coming of Jesus, is centripetal. It pulls people in from all over. And it's a very disparate and diverse group of people. One commentator says, we should note how God uses a wide range of people and from a vast array of social backgrounds to testify to Jesus. There are people in rural settings. There are people in the city. There are men. There are women. There are young betrothed couples and a pair of senior citizen saints. And they all share in the joy of Jesus' coming. Jesus comes for all humanity to unite all humanity. And this is something that I picked up on really honestly for the first time this year, because I'm used to thinking of Acts chapter 2 as the start of the church, because that's when the Spirit comes, and the people are like, oh, we're not gathering. And everything before that was sort of like a, a precursor to it. But really, Christmas is the start of the church. The Son of God becomes enfleshed and begins drawing all people to himself. 
Christmas brings together a really diverse and awkward group of people. And then as the story plays out, Jesus gathers a diverse and awkward group of people around him, apostles and disciples. Then the church pulls together through the Spirit, a body of believers drawn from every nook and cranny and every place of power and obscurity, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's not by accident, it's actually by design. And to me, that's really hopeful because we need something that can bring us together. We need a source for unity. Humans are experts at finding reasons to divide. We divide over ethnicity and social status and economic class and education, nationality, gender, age. And yet we have voices in our culture that are longing. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all unify? But you know, around the manger is one of the only times in human history that a genuinely uh, diverse group of people who would have no reason to mix otherwise actually come together. From Magi to the East, to animals, to those of high religious standing, to the poor, and everyone in between. And to me, this was convicting because I was reminded of the fact that one of the evidence, not the only evidence, but one of the evidence that Jesus is at work in your life is that you are forming relationship and community with those who are fundamentally unlike you in certain ways. And I want to put a, a finer point on that. One of the evidences that Christ is at work in your life is that you are forming relationship and community within some kind of local church community, some collection of people who gather around Jesus. And that's one of the ways to think about church. It's a localized expression of a group of people that are brought together by almost really, they don't have much else in common as a whole group. Maybe a few people do. But the only thing that pulls everyone, for example, into this room to sing, to worship, to pray is Jesus. Christmas brings people together. But we see God's intent that that wasn't meant for just Christmas. It's meant for all year round. And I want to address a pushback that some people are going to have. It's, it's growing in popularity and in prominence in our culture, which is, but I can love Jesus without going to church. I don't need to be meaningfully involved and invested in our church. And my pastoral pushback to that is really I get saying I love Jesus but I can't be part of a um, corrupted unhealthy abusive church context for sure but I love Jesus and I'm going to choose not to be a part of any church I don't, I don't know what that means no one's good enough for you there, there's no a bit like you have there's no context where you're willing or able to gather with other Christians and lay down some of your preferences of how you think the kingdom of God should roll out. I mean, I get it. That's a reaction to generations who grew up where like the only thing that mattered was going showing up at church. You could be spiritually dead inside. If you go to church every week, oh, we'll make you 
an elder and leader in our church. So I get that there's a reaction there, but I can look at, look at what Jesus is doing right from the start. He's bringing people together. When the Magi come and worship Jesus, don't you think that makes people feel uncomfortable like his parents? These are not like Christians. These aren't Christian scholars. These are like what we would think of as like occultic people who recognizes the king of the Jews, but there's a weird vibe thing happen. Jesus pulls from far and wide. When the kingdom breaks forth, people rally around Jesus. That's one of the, uh, the kingdom of God, when it breaks forth, it's, sen- um, it's centripetal. It pulls people towards Jesus. And in general, what I've experienced in my own life, honestly, and I've seen it pastorally, is withdrawal from a local community and isolation is often a fruit of disconnection with God. It's not, I'm firing on all cylinders with my love for Jesus and I could care less about these people over here or any you know, local gathering that I could be a part of. Now, again, I am not naive. People are like, well, you, Jeff, you don't understand what the church has done to me or what this church did to me or this person. In some of the specifics, that is probably true. But do you think I stand up here as a pastor because I've never been hurt by anybody in the church? Like, grievously? Do you think I'm up here because I just had an easy road? God just bulldozed all the toxic, immature, self-serving people? Do you think everybody in this room is here because they just had an easy ride? There's a lot of people in this room, myself included, who had to learn how to forgive. Not just like little slights. Right? Being a part of this community is not easy. Being a part of the church is not easy. You've got shepherds and Pharisees and eventually, you know, zealots and women and children and the rich and the poor and the young and ethnic Jews and pagan Gentiles and the slave and slaves and the free. But the Spirit pulls them all together and says, this is your new community. This is your calling. This is going to be one of the crucibles God uses in your life to learn to grow into maturity. That's what the church is supposed to be. We learn how to love each other better, healthier, more mature ways, and then we go out into the world and God's mission. And I know that's very idealistic, but I also live into the reality of it week over week, month over month. And I don't do that simply because it's my job. I do it because I think I'm called to do that as a Christian, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. I'm well aware that it's difficult to be a part of a less than ideal church, to be single in a church that's dominated by married people, to be in a church where the majority of people or the loudest people don't align with your political affiliation. It's not easy to be in a church where there are very few people that share your hobbies and interests. It's not easy to be in a church that isn't cool and is not the kind of place that you would invite your friends to. But we need those challenges and those inconveniences to mature our faith and to mature and grow our love. We really do. 
And if you don't think you need that inconvenience, and you don't think you need that relational stretching that comes from being a part of, you know, in a sense, gathering around the manger and looking up and saying, oh, you're here too? Oh. If you don't think you need that, then honestly, you do not understand something very basic about what Christmas is about and what Jesus intends to do in your life, which is, yes, pull you towards himself, but also pull you towards others, other broken, needy sinners who will fumble in following Jesus together and will have high moments and beautiful and uh, you know hallmark moments. But there'll be arguments and repairs that have to be made and crucial conversations and forgiveness. That's part of what it means to be Christian. Now you can say, I know, but all of that, I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy. I've done that. I'm burnt out on church. I'm just going to do the Jesus thing. But really all you're left with are two options at that point. You're just flying solo as a Christian and there's just, there's no biblical sort of framework for how, what that would even look like. Um, and the second thing is you just curate your Christianity. So you say, I'm not giving up on the church because what I've done instead is I've made my own micro church in my image where these are the people I hang around because they get me and they, we read the same books and we have the same hobbies. And so what I've done is I've curated my experience of Christianity so that I can love those who love me. And I can love those who are like me. Because that is, it's nice, it's easy. And if church was like that all the time, I'd go to church, but it can't be. So I'm cutting off from church and kind of building my own micro-gathering. But how transformative is that, honestly? I mean, I think what that really is, is self-centeredness. Because you are placing the value of what works for you at the center and building out from there. You're actually not gathering around Jesus. It's kind of a secondary thought. You're gathering around yourself and saying, these are my preferences. These are the songs I want to sing. This is, I, you know, Sunday morning doesn't work for me. I'm going, to, I'm going to go over here. These people, nope. I want people who are more conservative or more liberal. But loving people that are easy for us to love is not, it's not a Christian virtue at all. Jesus says that. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So I see in Christmas this beautiful, challenging picture that part of what Jesus wants to do is not just draw us to himself, but draw us to each other. And Jesus is not naive to what that's going to cost each of us. And we shouldn't be either. But we shouldn't shrink from it. Because that's one of the important ways God deepens and matures our faith and our love and appreciation for God. Because as we learn to love those who, if we're honest, we say, this is a hard person for me to love. We're reminded Oh, thank God that God loves me and keeps pursuing me and keeps giving me chances and keeps reaching out and keeps welcoming me 
even though I'm a hard person to love. So as we move towards Christmas, let's be open to something bigger than just a, a kind of a solo Christianity or a self-curated Christianity. The church gathering around Jesus, it's costly, but it's Jesus' plan. It's his purpose. And there are rich rewards for not only those who gather around Jesus at Christmas, but for those who do it year-round and commit themselves to imperfectly but courageously journeying with other people who are pursuing Jesus and are letting his light guide them forward. Let's pray.